Well, hello. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King Presbyterian Church. And I'm glad that you would join us in our virtual worship service, and glad that you would uh, tune in and, and be with us uh, this day. And let me just say from the very outset, now that we've been doing this for a number of weeks, that, that we recognize, that I recognize, that this is far from ideal. This is not how worship is intended to be, that, that we are to be together. We are to hear one another's voices. We are supposed to be able to look at one another in one another's eyes and, and stand side by side. And so I know this is not ideal. But even in this time of uh, quarantine, even in this time of separation, I'm thankful that though we cannot have the ideal, we can still have God's word, that that remains true and unchanging and powerful. And so I'm thankful that we can come to God's word. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14, in a moment, the passage will be placed on the screen in front of you for you to follow along. We're resuming our uh, series in 1 Samuel. Last week we took a break because it was Easter and we were celebrating the resurrection, but we're returning to our series in 1 Samuel. And as a way of reminder where we've been, you remember in 1 Samuel 13, Saul, the king over Israel, this one who had been anointed by God, he has turned away from God. He has disobeyed him and he has done acts and behaviors and, and actions that are contrary to God's word and his ways. And so as a result of this, God has declared that Saul's kingdom, his reign, will come to an end because Saul has not been faithful, because Saul has been foolish. Well, that foolishness continues, not just in chapter 13, but it rolls right into the chapter that we're going to be looking at today, that we're going to see in this chapter the marks of foolishness, these marks that Saul embodies himself, but these marks are going to be contrasted with faithfulness, what it looks like to be people of faith. And so let's go ahead and read 1 Samuel chapter 14. Because it's such a long chapter, I'm only going to read portions of the passage. Beginning in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, 
Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they will say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And in the midst of this panic, the people of God, Israel, they rose up, and they went to war against the Philistines. And now we pick back up our reading in verse 24. After they had defeated the Philistines, we read, The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come to your word now that you would lead us and that you would direct us, that you would show us the way that we are to go, and that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I think it was either the first or second year that we were here in Roanoke. We were, uh, our kids' school was doing a school open house early in the fall. It was a way of welcoming the new students, of the parents. It was a few days after school had begun. And I remember, you know what these open houses are like. You go from class to class. You meet the teacher. You hear what the students are going to be doing. You see where they're going to sit. It's, it's pretty much the same thing every year. It's an opportunity for us to meet the teacher and for the teacher to meet us. And so I remember I walked into Cole's classroom I walked into his classroom, and Cole was sitting on the far side of the room, and so he was sitting there with a buddy. They were talking or getting their desks ready or doing something, getting ready to hear the teacher give 
her little presentation about the upcoming year. And so instead of walking over to Cole, I decided to walk over and introduce myself to the teacher. I approached her, and as I got near, I started to stretch out my hand to, to introduce myself. But before I could even say my name, she looked at me and said, you're Cole's dad, aren't you? And I laughed and smiled and maybe looked, looked down for just a second. And I looked back up at her and I said, oh, oh did you notice a little resemblance? <laughs> because, of course, there is, right? There, there is. Cole is my little mini-me. We can't do anything about it. He looks just like me. In fact, his entire life, people have been commenting on how much he looks like me and how much I look like him, right? It's like father like son. You can't help but look at him and know that he is my son. But, but it's not just in appearance that Cole is like me. It's also in behavior and action, right? We have similar mannerisms, and, and sometimes we smile in similar ways, and we use similar phrases and words. He's a lot like me, like father, like son. And we expect this of fathers and sons. We expect it of mothers and daughters, that not only will they oftentimes look like one another, but, but oftentimes behavior, action, words, phrases, sayings, all of those things will, will start to duplicate themselves in the lives of our children. That our children learn what to say and what to do and how to act, right? That that's how it's done. We know this, that oftentimes behavior and action, it's, it's caught, it's not taught, and so they observe what we do. And they hear the words that we say, and they begin to look like us. They duplicate what we do. They replicate our behavior like father, like son. We expect this. And so when we hear about Jonathan, the son of Saul, Jonathan is this relatively new character in our book. He appeared a chapter before in chapter 13, but, but he was kind of minor in that part of the narrative. Now he's becoming more prominent. And as we learn more about him and as we hear that he is Saul's son, we're going to expect that he's going to look and act and behave a lot like Saul, like father, like son. But will he? Well, first, before we even answer that question, we have to ask, like, what do we know about Saul? What do we know about Saul? What, what is it that, that Jonathan could be replicating? What is it that Jonathan could be duplicating? Well, what we know about Saul is Saul is all about Saul. He's about his own agenda, his own desires, his own acclaim. Regarding his relationship with the Lord, Saul is a foolish man. See, that's what we know about Saul, that as a father, he's foolish. Now, that might seem harsh to some of you as you are listening to this. It might seem like Penny's being judgmental or overly critical. I mean, you might be thinking, well, well sure, Saul wasn't the model of piety. Of course, he wasn't perfect. He made some mistakes. He's human. But, but for goodness sakes, he was just trying, you know, and he was working hard. Foolish. No doubt Saul did have admirable qualities. Other passages told us he was tall and he was strong, he was handsome. We're told that when he went into battle, he was a good military leader. Even in our passage at the very end of chapter 14, in verses 47 and 48, 
we read that when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. You see, when it was time for battle, Saul was valiant and he could lead an army. But even with these glimmers of goodness, Saul, Saul embodied the marks of foolishness. Foolishness. We see examples of this foolishness in our passage. We see these marks of foolishness by the people that he has surrounded himself with, by the company he's keeping. We hear about them in verses 2 and 3. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Now, if you're just joining us, if you're just jumping into this series, those names might and probably mean nothing to you. But if you've been with us since the very beginning, you've heard those names before. Ichabod, Phinehas, Eli. These are the names of the, the members of the family line, this priestly line that we saw that we encountered earlier in the book. But if you remember what we heard about them, it was that, was that this priestly line was a wicked line. That Phineas and Hophni, the sons of Eli, who were priests and who were serving the people in the tent of meeting, who were seeking to lead the people into worship, they were actually engaging in sexual immorality, even in the place of worship. And they were taking advantage of the people. They were wicked men. And because of their wickedness, and because of Eli's inability to constrain them, God brought judgment upon them. And he rejected them. Remember, he rejected them so much so that Ichabod, that name, that son of Phineas, he was given that name by his mother because she had declared the glory had departed from Israel. Remember earlier in the book, God had removed his presence from Israel and he actually allowed himself in, through the means of the Ark of the Covenant to be taken into exile as a way of judging this line. And these are the names that are popping up again. These are the people that Saul has surrounded himself with. People who have the reputation of turning from God and going their own way. Now you remember from a number of weeks ago, I said that in historical narrative, oftentimes we're not told explicitly what we're to think about a specific person. But we're actually supposed to observe the the manner of their life, and the outcome of their actions. And so what do you think we're supposed to see when we hear that Saul is still consorting with the rebellious line of priests, with a line of priests that had been rejected? We're supposed to see this as foolishness. But Saul's foolishness is not just in the company that he keeps. Saul's foolishness is also in the details surrounding the oath that he makes. So the context is Israel was roused. They went and they fought against the Philistines in this great battle, and they defeated the Philistines. But they know that another battle is coming. And so we have this period of time between these two, two battles. 
And so what does Saul say? Well, he, he gives this oath in verse 24. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So let's think about that for a second. Israel has just gone into battle. They're exhausted. They're worn out. The people were faint, we're told. And another battle is coming, and so what does Saul do? Instead of allowing them to, to eat, to rest, to, to rejuvenate themselves, to ready themselves for battle, no, he says no one is allowed to eat. And so the people become faint. He is pressing hard upon them. That's what we're told. They were hard-pressed that day. That same phrase is used in chapter 13. But in that chapter, it's used as a result of the Philistines, the enemies of the people of God. They were the ones who were pressing hard on the people, but now it is Saul. And he's doing it through this oath. He's weighing them down. He's unnecessarily burdening them. And why? For his own glory. I mean, notice who Saul talks about in this oath. He talks about himself. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. You hear it? It's, it's not God's enemies. It's not God who is needing vengeance. It's Saul. As one theologian put it, this man who did not obey God in chapter 13 now makes no reference to God, expressed no confidence in God, and was obsessed with avenging himself on his enemies and coercing his people into supporting him. Saul's concerned with himself more than he is with God. And this is something that becomes even more evident later in our passage. Because as he's getting ready to go to battle with the Philistines, he has to be coaxed. He has to be reminded to even seek if this is what the Lord would desire. It's what we're told in verse 36. And in verse 37, when he does go and he asks if this is something that God would have him do, he's met with God's deafening silence. We're told, Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, referring to God, did not answer him that day. You see, Saul foolishly sought his own glory, his own acclaim, his own desires. He bore the marks of foolishness. He was a foolish father. But what about his son? Is this an account of like father, like son? Well, no, it's not. You see, instead of duplicating the foolishness of his father, Jonathan is faithful. He is faithful to the Lord. You see, while Saul, whose dynasty had been rejected a chapter before, is sitting with a priestly line who had been rejected chapters before, Jonathan is rising up in faith. Look at what he says to his armor bearer in verse 6. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What a wonderful statement of faith. Nothing can hinder the Lord. You see, Jonathan knows the situation that is before him. 
He knows the enemy is on the opposite hill. He looks upon them and faith arises. And it rises up in him, not because he's looking at his own strength and not because he's looking at the might of his men, but because he looks upon the Lord. And when he looks upon the Lord, what he sees is the reason for his faith. God's strength. You see, faith relies on God's strength. That's what he said. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And God's strength, his, his ultimate power, his power over all things, is a theme that is shown throughout Scripture again and again. For example, in Job, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things. In Jeremiah, the prophet says to God, nothing is too hard for you. In Luke chapter 1, the angel, as he appears to Elizabeth, he says, nothing will be impossible with God. And Jesus himself, in Mark 14, he says in his prayer to the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You see, what scripture presents to us and what Jonathan believed, what he had faith in, is that God is the one who can save. And that when he desires to save, when it is his will to save, nothing will stop him. Is a faith that relies on God's strength. But it's also a faith that submits to God's will. Did you hear the beginning of his statement in verse 6? It may be that the Lord will work for us. Now when we hear that phrase, it may be, it might make us think that Jonathan is wavering. That he's kind of hedging his bets. That he's not really sure, you know, he should ask this or, or that God could actually do this. But by interjecting this phrase, it may be, Jonathan isn't showing a lack of faith, but he's showing that his faith does not presume upon God's actions. It's not going to presume upon God's power. He's not going to try to dictate to God what God must do. Instead, Jonathan, even as he believes that God can save, he submits to what God will do. You see, that's what true faith is. It doesn't presume on God's will, but it submits to it. That's what Jonathan's demonstrating, a submissive faith. And it's a faith that's warranted, because God does save. And in this case, he saves by just a few. Because Jonathan and his armor bearer, they sneak up on the Philistines, and they attack them. And we're told in verse 14 that these two men struck down 20 Philistines. And because of this attack, there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And with the Philistines in a panic, with the soldiers trembling, the men of Israel are roused and they come to battle. In verse 23, we're told, the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. You see, Jonathan was right. If it is the Lord's will, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan had faith. Faith that God could save with just a few. And friends, we can have that same faith. We are to have that same faith. Because we know that God has saved. Not because of our strength, but by his strength. And he is saved not by a few or by many, but by one. 
Because, friends, we know that Christ accomplished in victory what no one else could. That he went to the cross and he took our sin upon himself. And he gave his body over to death and he was buried. And through his resurrection, he showed that nothing, nothing can hinder God from saving. Not death, nor hell. Not Satan, nor sin. Nothing can hinder him from saving those whom he loves. And so we have to ask ourselves, where is our faith? What have we placed our faith in? Is it in you? Is it in yourself? Is it in me? Is it in our government? Is it in our years of planning and preparing? Is it in your health or in your own wisdom? Where have you placed your faith? When we look upon the world and our circumstances and our situations, do we think it may be the Lord will work for us? For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Is that what we ask? Is that what we see? You see, friends, those other things, ourselves, planning, preparation, health, money, wisdom, career, whatever it might be, those things, they cannot save in an ultimate sense. But the Lord who saves by many or by few, the Lord who is saved by one, he does and he can. And so, friends, let me encourage you this day, this time, this season, in times of plenty and in times of want, in times of health and in times of sickness, in times of life and in times of death, let me encourage you, put your faith in God. Put your faith in his faithful son, the one who has saved. Amen. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your might is mightier than the mightiest of men, that your strength is stronger than the strongest of warriors. That your power is more powerful than even death itself. Because we know that you have raised your son, our Lord Jesus, from the grave. And because of him, we now have life. And so we pray that we today and all of our days would put our faith in this one who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And he has done it so that we would be saved. Help us to put our faith in him, to trust in you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen.